Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Greetings, conversationalists. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across America. Glad to have you with me today. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I don't know if Ken Charles is listening to me right now. Ken Charles is the program director for my flagship station, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Ken, if you're listening, this one's for you. <laughs> he sometimes tells me, you know, as you as you expand across the country more and more, we're going to be less served here as you talk less and less about Atlanta. I'm going to talk about Atlanta, Georgia now, but it's for a specific purpose. It's for all of you. Yesterday, I spent my third hour beginning the show talking about San Francisco and the collapse of San Francisco. Today, I wish to talk to you about the collapse of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it might as well. I think that probably someone kin to Sherman is in charge of planning for the city of Atlanta. Instead of burning the city down, they want to mow down pedestrians at this point. Now, this is a larger issue. This is not, I, I, I kid a little bit. I, 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 Atlanta's just the tipping point before we jump off into the rest of this. So in Atlanta, there's a streetcar, the streetcar of no desire. Literally, the only people who ride the streetcar in downtown Atlanta are homeless people and drug dealers. If you want to buy, maybe I shouldn't say this, but if you want to buy drugs in Atlanta, Georgia, you go get on the streetcar in downtown Atlanta, and the drug deals happen on the streetcar because nobody's on the streetcar. So the drug dealers and the kids from the colleges can get on the streetcar together and buy and sell drugs together. It's what you do. I can't tell you the number of people who have told me this. The number of college kids from Georgia Tech who openly talk about their druggy friends are going to the streetcar to buy drugs because nobody's on Y'all, this streetcar... So it's not like the subway system that runs underneath most cities. And in Atlanta, we have a sucky subway system. The subway system in Atlanta, it goes north and south, and it goes east and west. It doesn't care where you live or where you're going. It goes north and south, and it goes east and west. And then they have one line that branches off and goes to the northeast, and it's the yellow line. But they call it the gold line, not the yellow line, because the hypersensitive progressive Asian American community got upset that they were sending a yellow line to an Asian neighborhood and thought, oh, it's racism, it's racism. Well, they'd already come up with the color, so they call it gold, but they didn't change the color. It's still the yellow line, but we're not allowed to call it that because we might offend some progressive who thinks we're actually calling Asian people yellow or something. So it's the gold line. It's a stupid system. And you get accosted by homeless people like you're in New York City. 
But as if that wasn't bad enough, the progressives in Atlanta decided Atlanta needed a streetcar. And you needed to run it on the well-trafficked roads of downtown Atlanta. And you needed to expand it and block traffic and slow everyone down. And the streetcar can't move any faster than the rest of the traffic. No one knows what to do with it still. And nobody rides the damn thing. Y'all, this thing is empty in the middle of the day and in the middle of the night. There's nobody on the streetcar. It's the streetcar of no desire. And so the geniuses in Atlanta who are in charge of the system, instead of abandoning the streetcar and giving it up and scrapping it and handing those lanes back over to cars, do you know what they've decided to do? expand it. That's right. They're going to expand it. Now get a load of this. Get a load of this. Particularly if you live in the metro Atlanta area, you should listen to this number. I'm not making this number up. They're going to expand the streetcar of no desire. Two miles. Two miles. Do you know how much it's going to cost to expand the streetcar two miles? Right now, before they begin building it, the estimate, and remember, in infrastructure, the estimate is always the low dollar amount. It's going to be more than this. The estimate to build two more miles of a streetcar, literally only drug dealers and homeless people use, is $230 million dollars. More than $100 million per mile to build a streetcar extension that nobody wants. Now, where are they going to put it? This is the genius part of this. And bear with me here. Those of you who are in Greenville, South Carolina, you're you're in Hartford. Get out. You're wondering, what the, why the hell do I care? Oh, you're going to care. You're going to care. Just, just pay attention to me. So for two more miles, for $230 million, they're going to build this thing onto what's called the Beltline. So there was a railroad track in Atlanta, and it was abandoned by the railroads, and it was handed over to the city, and it's become this urban green space, and it's a giant, wide sidewalk that people can walk, and you can go all over uh, Atlanta on this streetcar, on this former railroad track. It's now this big sidewalk. People bike it. They run it. They jog it. They walk it. They're out there with strollers. There are now a bunch of businesses that back up to it, and so you have bars on on the Beltline, it's actually really kind of cool. It's the East Side Beltline, and there are a number of bars and breweries that have built up, so you can go walk, grab a beer, walk up the sidewalk. It gets you into the big park in Atlanta, Piedmont Park. It gets you to Pont City Market, which is an old factory they renovated. There's a Williams-Sonoma there and a lot of restaurants. Well, they want to put the streetcar on the Beltline, run over all the pedestrians. They literally want to build the streetcar so that it runs onto the Beltline. It used to be a train track. Now it's a pedestrian sidewalk. They want to put the train tracks back on it and get rid of the pedestrians on the Beltline. Geniuses! They've taken this huge green space, and now they want to put a a, a streetcar on it that literally no one wants to ride. And their theory is, well, if we build it over to the Beltline, people will ride it. To where exactly? 
Crackhead Central in downtown Atlanta, the homeless tent village. I'm sure a lot of the, the, the upper income hipsters who live on the east side of Atlanta and walk to their craft beer brewery want to actually get on the streetcar of no desire and go to Tent City in downtown Atlanta to smoke crack with Hunter Biden. These are the geniuses in charge of Atlanta, Georgia. They have a bunch of money they don't know what to do with, so they've decided to spend $115 million per mile. I did that math in my head, by the way, without a calculator. I'm impressed with myself. They want to spend $115 million per mile of train track for a streetcar that no one wants except the progressive urban planners. And there's the jumping off point for the rest of you. There have been some great innovations in urban planning. Take the Beltline in Atlanta, or you know what? The, the green space in uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. Y'all, it, it's kind of an untapped gym. It's in uh, upstate South Carolina. I got a new affiliate there, a very large station. Goes all the way from Asheville, North Carolina, down to Columbia, the signal does, WRD. It's in Greenville, South Carolina. I love Greenville, South Carolina. They have this amazing green space downtown. They've got these great sidewalks. Uh, they've got this walkable area, the little bridge that goes over the falls there. You can head out to Traveler's Rest. You can, where Furman is, you can ride your bikes. It's fantastic. Urban planning. Downtown, there's this great Weston Hotel, the Poinsett. And it's very walkable. The streets are very walkable. The access is very walkable. It's gorgeous. And it's been a great design for Greenville, South Carolina. But in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta is not Greenville. And in Atlanta, Georgia, they decided to put the streetcar in the middle of the road and then add bike lanes to reduce the amount of lanes available for cars. Most of the people who live in the Atlanta area commute downtown to work. And now they've gone from having four lanes of traffic to maybe one lane of traffic with a streetcar and bikers on the other side of them, and it's clogged up everything. And you don't have a subway system that gets anybody anywhere they want to go. And the urban planners have decided that's fine. We would rather people stay in their cars idling, contributing to smog, than actually allow them ingress and egress of the city to get to where they want. And you know what? If they're slow and stuck in traffic, they can get carjacked and killed and maybe we'll have less of a population. That's the mindset of the people who do these things, it seems to me. They want you to be carjacked in your car, stopped at a stoplight with two lanes of traffic now instead of five or six lanes of traffic, slow you down, let you cause pollution, and then you get shot and killed by the kids selling the water bottles that you don't want, the squeegee guy. It's a horrible third world hellhole they're turning the place into with this streetcar that nobody desires that's going to get two more miles for $230 million because the urban white elite planners of America have decided we've got to be more like Europe. Everybody's got to stick a corn cob up their butt, get an accent, and pedal everywhere they want to go because, God forbid, you have a car. We are Americans. We are fundamentally different from the Europeans. All of the great white urban planning schemes, and it is a bunch of crackers, you got to admit. It is a bunch of really, really white people who wants you women to not shave your armpits and they want you to have a bike and they want you to have a little basket and you speak Dutch and wear clogs and go wherever, just like in the Netherlands. It's such a glorious, glorious thing. That's what they want, turning us into European cities 
by making us walk everywhere instead of being able to drive our cars. And they're like, we need more trains. White people love trains. We need trains across the nation. Never mind you go to the airport and get on a plane. You get there a hell of a lot faster. But the Europeans, they have trains everywhere. Did you know that in France they've stopped allowing commuter planes because of global warming? you got to take the train now. That's what they want here, trains. Do you know you go 500 miles in any direction in Europe? And you're in a different country with people speaking a different language. It's how they kind of evolved. In this country, you go 500 miles in pretty much any direction, you're still in the freaking United States of America. In Texas, you go 1,000 miles in any direction, and you're still in Texas. And they have Southwest Airlines to commute people between cities instead of a train service. You get there faster, more likely to get there on time. And in this country, it's the urban white progressive planners like we need to get rid of airplanes and cars. And we need to put people in trains and streetcars filled with homeless people and drug addicts. Can we please, can we please stop doing urban planning in the United States of America based on what the freaking Europeans did. Do you know how many world wars the Europeans have won compared to the United States? We've won two of them. The Europeans, they've lost all. Do you know how many World Series championships the Europeans have won? None. SEC championships, absolutely none. Super Bowls, none. Not a single Super Bowl has been won by a European country. And yet the white progressives want us to live like Europeans, wearing wooden shoes and pedaling bikes everywhere instead of actually being able to ride our car in downtown Atlanta or downtown Charleston or anywhere else. It's gotten ridiculous. And now the white progressives have taken over Atlanta and they want to spend $230 million to build two miles for a streetcar. Literally no one except the homeless and crackheads want. And then they want to actually build it on top of this green space that everybody walks on. Doesn't matter whether it's Atlanta or Greenville or New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or San Francisco. The urban planners have decided that they want a vision of Europe imposed on America instead of actually listening to Americans and doing what Americans want, which is cheap gas, to go distances in comfortable cars and not be bothered by homeless people with water bottles and squeegees or the crackheads on a streetcar of no desire. The sooner we stop listening to these people, the better off we'll be. Maybe, just maybe, we should stop funding urban planning from progressives who want streetcars. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. As I mentioned earlier, J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, is not a fan of Binomics. He says, uh, I'd be careful about that in reference to President Biden's economic theory that rejects trickle-down policies in favor of focusing on the middle class. The president claims, this is from CNN, that middle-class focus is the driving force behind the U.S. economy's success. Diamond's not convinced. It's a tough question to answer, he said. In an interview with The Economist, Diamond classified Bidenomics largely as industrial policy, a strategy that specifically encourages or subsidizes particular industries such as manufacturing. He said he's in favor of some industrial policy lately for the first time in his life, but only as it relates to national security and competitiveness. There shouldn't be social policy around that. It shouldn't be political. It should be purely economic. But, of course, it was very political with all the environmentalist uh, nonsense put into it. 
He's got a point, though. Listen, I am increasingly of the mindset that when our major military planners, the Department of Defense, and the outside experts are all saying, hey, we've got a real supply crisis when it comes to the military, we probably do need, as a matter of national security, to spend money to build the bulk of our weapon systems and the key components here. Not only that, uh, our antibiotic supplies, particularly for generics, need to be here. If China tomorrow said, you know what, no shipments of anything to the United States, we would be up a creek. The absurdity of us making uh, microchips and other parts for our weapon systems, particularly our missiles, is in China is absurd. I'm not a big factory. We need to bring back manufacturing factories to this country. I, you know, we can we can build a lot of this stuff abroad cheaper. I think we need to ally uh, source it instead of just outsourcing to China. Source it to our allies. Spend money helping them. We should be spending. Yes, we should be spending taxpayer dollars in India to help the Indian companies build up their manufacturing to be able to make our uh, products for our markets cheaper. We can't build a lot of stuff here as cheap because of environmental rules, labor rules, uh, the the economics of it, the cost of living here. We can't. You don't want to spend $10,000 on an iPhone, and neither do I. But it doesn't need to be made in China. But then there are things that we need to support here, like steel, steel production in this country. China produces way more steel than anyone else. We've got to bring that back to this country. But not only that, we've got to bypass the environmentalists and actually dig and drill in this country. We can't harvest and extract a lot of the raw earth, rare earth minerals and raw minerals in this country because of environmental regulations. We've got massive lithium sources in this country we're not allowed to tap because of environmentalists. We've got other rare earth minerals and nickel and things like that in this country we're not allowed to get because the environmentalists are upset with us. And then meanwhile, China's going around the world buying up rare earth mineral mines and property rights, and we're not doing that either. At some point, we've got to wake up in this country. The environmentalists are working in cahoots with China, intentionally or not, to undermine our national security. And I think Diamond's right. uh, Jamie Diamond is right that uh, take the politics out of it. Don't subsidize the cause celeb of the left or the right. Subsidize and, and engage with the national security industry in this country. Break apart some of the aerospace manufacturers. Get them back to independent companies. Do business with all of them. Prop them up. Allow diversity and ideas to thrive there. We like diversity in business. Make diverse businesses. Greetings. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Mike, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you? Hello, you there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, yeah, sorry. I thought I lost you. Um, Yes, uh, my my question was regarding your last segment, um, regarding, you know, manufacturing jobs that, we can't afford to do in the U.S., and hence they end up over in China, unfortunately. Um, is there some way, some gov- I mean, guess a way through the government to encourage um, these jobs moving into places like Central America or South America? Because, um, I mean, I guess it's almost to kill two birds with one stone. I mean, we hear with the immigration issue and the, the southern border. 
that these are all people that have no opportunities and they have to come to the U.S. to find work. Well, can't we, instead of these jobs, instead of paying China for all this manufacturing, can't we set up shop in central in, in these Latin American countries instead? Yeah, you know, that's actually something uh, that both the Democrats and Republicans are exploring, and not just there, but in places like India and elsewhere. Um, we've done this with the North American Free Trade Agreement in Mexico for the private sector. But uh, what the government has explored doing is providing economic incentives to American companies setting up shop in these areas of the world to build out their manufacturing facilities and train. In fact, we've got, for example, uh, in uh, Chile and in El Salvador, uh, even in parts of Mexico, we've got areas of those countries that are extremely pro-United States that have well-trained. Chile is a great example of this, and Peru. Uh, You've got uh, great people who have embraced free market economics. Uh, They're well-educated. They've got access to natural resources, like, for example, in in Chile and Peru, uh, nickel, lithium, copper, things like that. We should be and, in fact, have a, a, I think, a growing economic consensus on the Democratic and Republican side that we've got to do that. I call it ally uh, shoring. People talk about offshoring our stuff or outsourcing, ally source it, ally shore it, however you want to say it is we don't have to outsource to China. That is a choice businesses are making to outsource to China. We don't have to do that. What we can do, and I would argue what we should do, is we should outsource to countries that have our back, outsource to countries that share our values, uh, outsource to countries that want to be allies with us. So that means... Uh, yeah, Taiwan, although that's perilous given the situation. Vietnam and Thailand are pro-America. The Philippines as well. Uh, India, increasingly so. We could outsource to India. We could outsource to Peru. We could outsource to Chile. We could outsource to El Salvador, create good jobs there, help their governments become more stabilized by bringing in better economic resources. We could do this. It's a choice to do it or not to do it. And I think it makes a lot of sense for us to do uh, because a lot of people will say, well, bring it all home, bring it all back to the United States, bring everything back here, create jobs here. There's a problem with that. Um, Some of you may disagree with me on on whether or not we should. I I don't think we can for a variety of reasons, but chief among them is cost. Americans have a higher standard of living than someone in India. That's just a reality. Someone in India can live on $1,000 comfortably. Someone in this country can't. So to pay someone in this country to do the job that you could do in India for a lot less, you got to pay higher wages. Uh, The cost of labor are higher here. Uh, The cost to produce are higher here. The environmental regulations are more here. Uh, The burdens and unionization in some states drive up costs. So companies would spend a whole lot more to make a product in this country uh, the product would be so expensive, we would price ourselves out of the market. You can't make an iPhone at scale in the United States of America and sell it as cheaply as you can by making it in China, India, or Vietnam. That's just the reality of the way the economy works in the world. Americans have a higher standard of living, so it costs more here. Um, and so we don't want to do that for a lot of stuff. But for our national security, we probably do want to bring every component of our weapon systems home. We probably do.
And we do have the situation where over the years, we had uh, major, what do we have? Martin Marietta, we had Lockheed, uh, which is now Lockheed Martin. You had Boeing, um, Boeing and Northrop Grumman, and you had Lockheed, and you had Martin Marietta, and you had a bunch of other weapon systems. And over time, a lot of them merged. Uh, Raytheon bought up a lot of its competitors. Uh, Raytheon makes a lot of weapon systems, but a lot of the weapons components, we used to have multiple companies that could make the same weapon system. All of those companies have now merged. Each of those companies had their individual suppliers for the components. When those companies merged, they got rid of some of the suppliers. They consolidated. The suppliers merged. So now we have maybe one or two subcontractors for a contractor who makes a weapon systems for one of the weapons contractors. Uh, We have really ended diversification. It's kind of funny for all of the the hullabaloo over diversity, skin color diversity in particular on the left – uh, neither the left nor the right has paid any attention to the diversity of our weapons manufacturers. They have allowed so much consolidation, it's now working against us at a national security level. You know, Dwight Eisenhower, you know, there's this scene, if you've ever watched The Crown, um, there's the scene where he supposedly is going to come to Buckingham Palace, doesn't wind up pulling off, but the queen gets a tutor. She wants to know what is Dwight Eisenhower concerned with so she can relate to him and and her tutor tells her the military-industrial complex. In fact, Dwight Eisenhower was deeply concerned with the military-industrial complex. That, in effect, the military outside vendors of the private sector could become so powerful as to dictate the terms of national security and the direction of this country. He was very concerned about it. At this point, we need to be concerned that we actually have a military-industrial complex. Because a lot of it is so outsourced component-wise, it becomes a burden for us to be able to navigate uh, our uh, industrial policy in terms of uh, building weapons. we got to think about that. Now, I need to move on because I need to talk about farts. (laughs) I have to talk about gas. Y'all, I continue to believe that Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign is actually being funded by outside parties as a way to hurt Donald Trump. I do. Um, this is if if I, you know, everybody has conspiracies they believe. Everybody has conspiracies, no matter how kooky they are. You may believe in lizard people. You may believe that uh, the JFK assassination was done by the CIA. A lot of people believe that. You may believe in the the alien uh, spaceship conspiracy theory circulating these days. My conspiracy theory is that RFK Jr.'s campaign was put up by people as a way to hurt Donald Trump. Now, what am I talking about? Well, Donald Trump, if you paid attention, he sit at about 50-some-odd percent in the national public opinion polling averages for the Republican primary. So a lot of Trump supporters are looking at Kennedy at 20 to 25 percent within the Democratic Party. They're looking at uh, Joe Biden deciding he won't uh, compete in Iowa or New Hampshire. He's going to focus on South Carolina instead. Iowa and New Hampshire's delegates will not be seated at the Democratic convention. Uh, RFK is making a big play for him. You got a lot of Trump supporters thinking, you know what? I'm going to go vote for RFK. Operation Chaos, baby. All over again, we are going to sow chaos on the Democratic side. Rush Limbaugh would be proud. We will have Operation Chaos. We will help RFK against Joe Biden. After all, Donald Trump's over 50%. He doesn't need our vote. And then suddenly Trump loses. I'm convinced. 
convinced that RFK is an inside operation to disrupt Trump's nomination on the GOP side. But he's taken it very seriously. Page six is the gossip portion of the New York Post. Page six regrets to report that a press dinner to boost Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign descended into a foul bout of screaming and polemic farting Tuesday night. (laughs) Now, back in the day, just from perspective here, back in the day, Rush Limbaugh got taken off the air in Chicago and other places because he did a segment on the hazard of women farting in their cars. And people thought he was saying farting, which at the time was unacceptable. This is the late 80s, I think 1989, 88 or 89. Rush Limbaugh was taken off the radio literally in multiple markets during a monologue about women farting in their cars. Now, he was using the word farting, F-A-R-D-I-N-G, which means to put makeup on. And he was talking about the dangers of women drivers farting in cars, women applying makeup while driving. He thought it was hilarious. The listeners thought it was hilarious. Certain program directors of radio stations across America were horrified, and they yanked him mid-monologue, not realizing what he was talking about. And here I am talking about farting, the passing of gas on radio, and it's no big deal, and nobody is offended except for one person in Rio Linda who's angrily banging on the keyboard right now to tell me I'm using profanity. The White House hopeful attended an affair at Tony's on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, no doubt hoping to impress on the ladies and gentlemen of the Fourth Estate his worthiness to sit behind the Oval Office desk once occupied by his uncle. But a shouting match over climate change broke out between two boisterous old men, sending the evening down an extremely unfortunate path of boomer gas. The gaseous exchange, to which page six bore reluctant witness, began, oh, they were there, the writer was there. A guest asked Robert Kennedy, founder of the ecological organization Waterkeeper Alliance, about the environment. And it seemed that the mere inquiry was enough to set off apparently drunk gossip columnist turned flack Doug Deckert, the host of the event, who became enraged and screamed at the top of his lungs, the climate hoax. Meanwhile, octogenarian art critic Anthony Hayden Guest, who appeared to have been sleeping happily for most of the dinner, was roused by the abrupt rumpus. He suddenly opened his eyes and denounced his longtime pal Deckert, calling him a miserable blob. Shut up, implored Hayden Guest. Hayden Guest tells us he was not asleep. I was just thinking, he told us, and says he's the one who asked the question about the environment. Deckert continued to scream wildly about the climate change scam while Hayden Guest peppered him with verbal volleys from across the table, calling him variously effing insane and insignificant. Meanwhile, Kennedy watched the events unfold calmly. Here, it seems, Doug Deckert sensed the need for a new rhetorical tact and ripped it loudly, a prolonged fart into the room, yelling, I'm farting. The room, which included a handful of journalists, as well as Kennedy's campaign manager, former Representative Dennis Kucinich, were stunned, seemingly unsure about whether Deckert was farting at Hayden Guest personally or at the very notion of global warming. The candidate maintained a steady composure in the face of the crisis. Former Page Six reporter Flo Anthony attempted to change the subject, 
telling Kennedy how much she admired his father. Sadly, another guest brought her back to climate change and more yelling ensued. Um, okay. Here we have the, my goodness. Um, apparently, uh, at least the dude who pooted in the room apologized for it. This is kind of insanity, folks. This is what you expect from Robert Kennedy Jr. <laughs> and it's all a bunch of old boomers. No one's ever, nobody cared. Why, why even do this sort of dinner? Good grief. Uh, let alone have it be on the record. Um, <laughs> Robert Kennedy's campaign is a joke, and the insane thing are the number of people on the right who, because he questions vaccines, have fully embraced him. They agree with him on like 10% of what he believes, but oh my gosh, I'm going to go support RFK. Uh, you know, um, there was somebody the other day who is a Trump supporter who said if Trump's not the Republican nominee, they're supporting Robert Kennedy. Do you know what he stands for? No, other than, than, than he, he works out and questions the COVID conspiracy theories. The dude's a nut job. Nut job. Um, I just, it's, it's um, Robert Kennedy's campaign exists for the gullible and the uninformed. And I am convinced it is a sleeper campaign designed to cost Trump the Republican nomination. He has no business running. He's a nut who believes that anyone who questions global warming should be put in jail. That's actually what Robert Kennedy believes. If you don't believe in global warming, you're supposed to go to jail, according to Robert Kennedy. And you want this guy to be president? No. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Ah, I'm going to take my wife to the mountains in a little while after I finish some work and some old ad reads for Charlie and... We'll see if she wants to go, like, have a date with me. <laughs> so at, at the end here, I, I want to spend a moment on Instant Pot. The, the company is uh, was purchased by private equity and is going bankrupt. Uh, and one of the things that is being spun on this is, I think, absolute garbage. Listen to this spin. What doomed the Instant Pot? How could something that was so beloved sputter? Is the arc of kitchen goods long but bends towards obsolescence? Business schools may someday make a case study of one of Instant Pot's vulnerabilities. Namely, it was simply too well made. Once you slapped down your $90 for the Instant Pot Duo 7-in-1, you were set for life. It didn't break. It didn't wear out. The company hasn't introduced major innovations that make you want to level up. As a customer, you were one and done, which might make you a happy customer, but as hell on profits and growth performance metrics. That's something that people say that is not true. You know how I know? KitchenAid. I have the same KitchenAid mixer that I have used for 15 years, and I use that, I abuse it. The amount of dough it needs in my house, the amount of cookies it makes and cakes it makes, and it has worked like a charm for 15 years. We haven't gone out and bought another KitchenAid mixer. The idea that you can make a product so well that no one needs to buy a new one so the company goes out of business is crap. It's, it's mismanagement by private equity. That's what it is. Private equity was uh, bought instant brands, Cornell Capital. It also... Uh, owns Corel Brands, uh, which makes Pyrex, which is another company that, by the way, I haven't replaced my Pyrex uh, dishes in years. 
I think we've got the same Pyrex we've had since we've been married 23 years ago. High-quality products, if you run a company right, can last. Instant Pot was all the rage. Bought by private equity. They, I'm sure they piled a bunch of debt into it as well. Private equity doesn't make money selling products. Private equity makes money on selling debt, among other things. Uh, and the company's been run into the ground. This is a this is dangerous thinking, by the way. A quality product, well made, that isn't replaced regularly, does not mean a company goes out of business. In fact, those are the companies that become uh, lifelong attachment companies, like KitchenAid. Uh, generations of people will use KitchenAid mixers. When a kid gets married, my niece got married, she got a KitchenAid mixer. Our friends get married, they get KitchenAid mixers. I buy KitchenAid mixers for friends of mine who get married, and they use the same KitchenAid mixer for their entire marriage. I hope. Why? Because they last. Same with the Instant Pot. Uh, I don't use my Instant Pot a lot except to make cheesecakes. It makes a great cheesecake. But I'm not going to have to replace it for a long time. And I will recommend it to other people, and they will buy them as they get into the market. And you know what Instant Pot did? It made multiple sizes of Instant Pots, so you didn't have to buy the biggest one. But as your household grew, you did. I know someone who has four Instant Pots. She uses them for everything. Hi, Bethany. I know you're listening. The idea that a well-made product causes the company to go bankrupt as opposed to it got bought by private equity that ran it into the ground. Uh, that's dangerous thinking, and it's also they're trying to use it as an indictment on capitalism that if you make the product too good, people don't come back to it. you got to make a crap product. No, you don't. Make the best product, you will get rewarded. Instant Pot was long rewarded for making the best product, just like KitchenAid and Pyrex as, Pyrex as well. It's private equity ruined it, not the quality of the product. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.